Oh my god, it's that Shakespeare again. What's he saying? Oh Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? So annoying, just leave him on red. Ooh, Camus just texted. Mother died today, or maybe yesterday, I can't remember. O-M-G, text him back right now. No one likes being left on red and feeling ignored, but sometimes you just gotta do it. Welcome to the podcast that takes this idea and applies it to literature of all types. Today we're going to be talking about a very well-known short story. Or I should say that people think that they know this short story. And I'll say that's thanks to Disney. So we're going to be talking about Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid today. I admittedly never have seen The Little Mermaid movie from Disney. I have not seen the live action, I have not seen the animated from back in the day when I was a child. So I have very little idea if the movies are good or bad or anything like that. But what I do know, and what I've heard people talking about these movies, they are nothing like the real story. Actually, it's impossible that Disney would ever be able to sell this story in this format. Since this text is from 1836, so a very long time ago, it's in public domain, so I can actually give more details about the story. If anybody's interested in having me read this story out loud, since it is in public domain, I could create an audio reading of the story. So let me know and I can make that happen. Otherwise, I'll just go through this podcast today and I will give a very in-depth summary. I'll talk about the things that I'm assuming are very different from the Disney version. I sadly don't have any platforms that stream the film or I would watch it before telling you the story here. So once again, these are all based on my assumptions. If anybody's seen the film, please feel free to email me at claycreativesolutions at gmail.com. I will gladly make corrections in the next week's episode. But just knowing that there's a beautiful red-headed mermaid that falls in love with a prince and that, from my knowledge, walks on land and becomes an actual princess, especially based off of what you see at Disney World, this story has nothing whatsoever similar to that. I think there's pieces, probably. But anyway, let's hear about this story. So first, just a little bit of information about Hans Christian Andersen. He's an author that I'm sure many people know from various stories. He wrote The Little Mermaid, The Ugly Duckling, which is a very famous short story. And he also wrote the story The Ice Queen, which is supposed to be the story that influenced Disney's Frozen. I can do a whole other episode on that. I have seen Frozen and I have read the short story and they have very few similarities. But there's, I guess, enough there for Frozen to be very loosely inspired off of it. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is to say that Hans Christian Andersen is a Danish author from the 1800s who wrote a lot of children's literature, fairy tales, and short stories for children in particular. As they were written in the 1800s, times have changed a lot. The mentality of how to raise children have changed a lot. The purpose of writing fairy tales has changed a lot. So it's not too much of a surprise that these stories have been adapted and republished in different ways that are more acceptable for today. At the same time, it is so fascinating to go back and read these stories and learn what the real things are. 
I think that this story is a perfect example, actually, of how there's this Disneyification of stories because the things that are in the story just make you cringe a little bit. It also shows that a lot of these fairy tales were probably more so written for adults or at least to entertain adults as they're reading them and telling them to children. If that's not a kind of hidden undertone going through these fairy tales, I'd be very surprised. I'd also be shocked if these did not cause trauma on the children that are hearing them. I just can't imagine this being an easy-go-lucky story that would make a child imagine and dream as Disney stories do. So The Little Mermaid was written in 1836. That's about 31 years into Hans Christian Andersen's life. The story opens up and it talks about a sea king and it talks about the world. So he does a lot of world creation, talking about the plants and the flowers and the society of the sea people, etc. And of course, there's a lot of details in this. For example, there's references to where this kingdom is, talking about the water being so blue like corn flour, clear as crystal, and that the kingdom is so deep down that it's impossible to imagine it. So they actually use church steeples as a way, so something really high, saying that if you piled a bunch of church steeples on top of one another, you still wouldn't touch the bottom where this kingdom is supposedly at. We then see these interesting comparisons between the land above and the world below the sea. So fish floating around as birds fly in the sky. There's plants. The roofs are made out of shells. You can imagine like tiles or limestone on a roof back in the day. There's all these ways to try to bring the world where humans live down to the sea world as a way to reflect our world, but obviously be different. We have the figure of the Sea King, and there are no names whatsoever given in this story. We have a grandmother. We have, of course, the Little Mermaid. We have her sisters. We actually don't get any names. We hear the sisters just identified by the numbers that they're born in. There's the grandmother. We know that the Sea King is a widower, etc. We don't get any strict details. So already we don't have Ariel in the story whatsoever. We just have a mermaid and we don't have any information about her father. For example, in Disney's version, we have the father's name, King Triton. We have these fish friends, Flounder, Sebastian, etc. And we also know that there's Prince Eric, right? We don't know any of these figures in Hans Christian Andersen's story. That is all purely made up by Disney to make the story more relatable, also more personal. So there's a strange rule that's not really explained at all in the story. You're not allowed to go to the surface of the sea and sit on the rocks or do anything and watch the ships until you're 15. We think about that as being the age of maturity for women, especially at the time. It's not uncommon for women to be married, start a family, etc. There's this idea that mer people are restricted from going to the surface until that age. And of course, we have the sisters all getting there and they come back and they tell everyone else what they saw, what they did. And interestingly, the Little Mermaid is so curious. She just can't wait. She keeps wanting to go to the surface. She wants to see all these things. And her sisters keep telling her all these things that's going on. 
And that is one thing that does, in my opinion, appear in the Disney movie. It makes sense. All the princesses seem to be slightly rebellious in some sense or another, even if they are often searching for that male companion, the king, right? I know that's changed a lot in Disney in the recent years, but if we think about the other films, it's always based on that search of the girl trying to find the prince or the king or whoever it might be trying to become married. So I'm assuming that idea of rebellion and that brave, courageous nature is still present in the film. I could go into details about what all these sisters see. Some of them see icebergs and things because it's the winter when they go up. Some of them are seeing ships. They describe all these things that just inspire a lot of awe in The Little Mermaid. She is the last one to be able to go up to the top of the sea, the last one to turn 15. And she, of course, goes up and she sees everything and she is just completely awestruck by all of these things. And that's, of course, the moment when she sees the ship and a beautiful prince. So she's observing them just from afar. Everything's kind of calm. And she's actually approaching pretty close the ship and the windows of the ship and watching this prince actually creepy I'm not gonna lie you can just imagine if you're in your home or in your ship whatever and somebody's peeking in through the windows as you're eating or getting dressed or whatever it honestly has some stalker vibes going on not gonna lie but in any case she's in love and it's romantic and that's all that you really think about when you're reading this, even though it does have that really creepy aspect. A storm comes and the ship actually ends up wrecking. And what happens is the mermaid saves the prince from the shipwreck. And then she, of course, is stuck to the water. But instead of leaving and going back to her kingdom, she stays floating, chilling around, as she watches the prince from afar on the shore where she placed him. And then another woman actually comes out and finds the prince and helps him back into the castle. Of course, he had no idea that the Little Mermaid even existed, right? First off, mermaids don't exist for humans. Second off, why would he assume that a mermaid pulled him out of the water and put him on the shore? And why would he look at her as thanks? And we see her being very hurt by that in the story. Girl, what did you think was going to happen? He doesn't even know you're there. But hey, she gets very upset. And of course, she then can only think about that. She is essentially obsessed from this very first sight. She explores around. She tries to find out more about the, the prince. And she actually does find people in the Sea Kingdom who do know about the prince and where his palace is and all of these good things. She gets really curious about humans at this point. It's something very new to her and something that wasn't really much talked about in these little explorations from the other mermaids to the top. So she starts asking all sorts of questions, not just about the prince, but about humans in general. There's an interesting interaction with her grandmother. Obviously, she realizes that humans can drown and die. But she asked her grandmother, if humans don't drown, can they live forever? Or do they die just as the mermaids do. Once again, we find out this interesting idea that mermaids are just like human beings, right? 
However, then we find out a little bit more about their lifespan and what their kind of expectancy is for life. Humans, of course, just like mermaids, have to die. The grandmother explains that human life is much shorter than mermaid life. That's when we find out that mermaids can live to 300 years old, and that when mermaids cease to exist, they become the foam in the surface of the water and the sea. So there's no grave, there's no kind of memorial or anything like that. The mermaid essentially just becomes a part of the ocean, which is quite a beautiful image in all honesty. If we think about how sea foam is all over the place and that's actually mermaids who have passed away, quite sad, but quite beautiful at the same time. I found that to be a very beautiful image that popped up. Doubt that one appears in Disney. Death is not something typically explicitly discussed in this way, but you never know. Interestingly, we also find out that mermaids here do not have souls. So once mermaids die, that's it. There's no idea of an afterlife. They become the sea foam and that's it. Done. She does explain that human beings have a soul which lives forever, lives after the body has been turned to dust. It's interesting that there's this dynamic of religion coming into play. Makes sense for the 1800s, especially in Denmark, which is a European country that was colonized by Christians and has continued Christian culture since then. This is something that actually pops up in a lot of fairy tales and folk tales that we see this dichotomy between what's natural and what's Christian. And here we have humans being Christian, having a soul, having an afterlife. The prince and all of these people coming from boats and castles and churches and things like that, this is all showing them as civilized beings, as people that are building for a future, for future generations, but also that have an afterlife that will be taken care of based on the actions that they have. Whereby with the mermaids, right, there's not that aspect. They come from a natural environment. As I described a little bit at the beginning, their environment is made with what's around them, seashells, things like that. It's not anything that's been redone by the mermaids themselves, whereas humans are going to remake things and make it work for them, right? They're going to control what's around them, make it better, make it civilized. This natural side of mermaids means that they can't be like humans. It blocks them from allowing them to be a creature with a soul that has an afterlife and a conscience and all of these other things. So it sets up this really strong dichotomy that appears in a lot of different fairy tales and folk tales that try to show that God is more important and better than anything that's just natural or part of the natural world or that's considered barbaric. The Little Mermaid then asks about this idea of an immortal soul, and she expresses for the first time that she would like to be human to know that one day she would get to this world above the stars. And the grandmother, of course, is, oh, no, you don't want that. We find that we're much happier and better off than humans. And, of course, that doesn't really do it for the Little Mermaid. She still wants to become a human. And she thinks that it's stupid, essentially, to just become foam and never hear the music of the waves any longer, to see flowers of the sun, or to see any of these things that she loves at this time. And she asks then if there's anything that she can do to have a soul. Her grandmother actually says that, no, but, there's always that but, right? 
She can find a man, a human. Of course, it's got to be a man because we can't have any queer love in the 1800s. So, no women for the Little Mermaid. He would love her more than his father or his mother. Essentially, he needs to love her so much that they need to become married and have a family. Apparently, if she can do this, his soul glides into her body and then she gets a share of mankind's happiness. He would keep his own soul, so it's not like it's a weird succubus kind of transfer thing, but she also gets his soul. She benefits that. She doesn't necessarily lose any of her mermaid qualities at this point, right? She needs to convince this man to do it. That doesn't mean she can go onto land. Fish's tails are considered ugly on land, whereas to them, the mermaid's tail is beautiful, right? So there's this idea of perspective that comes into play. And she explains that, in fact, people think you need to have legs in order to be attractive. So this then sets the Little Mermaid down her new spiral, even though her grandmother's saying, let's be happy, let's live our life and do our thing. Little Mermaid's like, nope, not going for that. So she, of course, does nothing else but try to find a way to get legs. And what does she do? But go see the sea witch. I know that the sea witch does exist in the Little Mermaid story as Ursula. I don't honestly know what her point is, but I'm assuming that it is not this. So in the short story, the Little Mermaid goes to the sea witch and asks for legs. She wants to try to become human. The sea witch, of course, has stipulations. I can do that for you, but you're not going to be a mermaid any longer. You'll never be able to come back to your family. And if you don't win the love of the prince, then you're actually going to just die. You'll never have an immortal soul. You'll never be sent to this idea of heaven that the humans have. And the second that the prince actually marries someone else, that's the second that you will die of heartbreak. And then you'll become nothing but foam on the waves. So she takes a big risk. If she does this, she risks the same fate as the mermaid's fate. She risks it at much faster of a rate. And she is also not really aware of what is all going to still take place. Because the sea witch, of course, has further stipulations. The sea witch has to be paid. So if she does this for her, the little mermaid needs to give her something in return. The Little Mermaid, I believe this carries over into the f- Disney film where Ariel is known to be a great singer. The Little Mermaid offers an exchange for legs. She offers her voice, which is supposed to be the most beautiful voice in the entire ocean. If the sea witch takes her voice, what happens is the Little Mermaid only has her looks, has her walk, her eyes. She will not be able to talk. In fact, the witch literally cuts out her tongue. I know that is not in the Disney film. The witch takes out her tongue and keeps it for herself. But that gives the Little Mermaid the legs. And she actually takes this deal. She cuts out her tongue, gives it to the sea witch, and she gets her legs and she goes to the surface. At this point, she's not sure what's going to happen whatsoever. In fact, she is found by the prince. 
And the prince is having a deja vu moment. I think I remember seeing you from somewhere, but I don't know what, etc., etc. I'm going to fast forward through some of this, but I will mention that the first time that she walks, she's assuming that she's going to be just as graceful and she's going to have just as much ease as she did with the tail. In fact, every time she walks, it's like being stabbed with knives over and over again. So even though she looks graceful, even though she looks beautiful, even though now she is officially attractive to humans, she cannot talk, and walking is the most painful thing she can ever do. She essentially is not getting the wish that she really wanted to get, but hey, she played with the devil and she got what she got. She gets to the surface and is getting used to these different things and trying to figure out what's going on. And the prince actually takes her under his arm as like a servant maid person who tries to just help him. And essentially she's trying to woo him, but she can't communicate to that to him. He actually is already in the process of getting married to the woman that picked him up on the beach after the Little Mermaid had put him there. So what does this mean? This means that the Little Mermaid is seeing him in the process of marrying this other woman while she is depending on him to marry her so that she can live as a human and then have an immortal soul. Essentially, her whole fate relies on this, and it doesn't seem very promising so far. And once again, it's all because the prince thinks that this other woman is the one who actually saved him. In such a twisted, evil way, she is in charge of holding the train of the bride as she walks to this spot for the marriage and she's essentially knowing that it's the last evening that she'll ever see the prince that she'll ever be alive that she'd given up her voice and suffered all of this pain of walking being stabbed while she's walking essentially and he has no idea that she's the one who saved him he has no idea that she sacrificed all these things he has no idea of anything whatsoever. She goes through this marriage and prepares for the worst. She actually goes to the side of the boat because of course naturally this happens on a boat and suddenly she sees her sisters rise out of the water and they don't look exactly like they did before but she can recognize them anyway. They don't look like they did before because they don't have their long beautiful hair. The Little Mermaid was known for her voice. Her sisters were known for their hair. They actually gave their hair to the witch so that they can come and help her. The witch gave them a knife. And before the sun rises, she has to kill the prince with the knife. As soon as his blood touches her feet, the tail that she once had will grow again and she'll be able to return to the kingdom, kingdom of the mermaids. So she will no longer die and she won't change into sea foam until, of course, she dies as a mermaid would. All she has to do, kill the prince, the one that she loved so much and the one that she, of course, did all these changes for. The little mermaid has no idea what to do. She seems like she's going to go through with it. She's looking at the knife, she's looking at the prince, and she has no idea what the heck to think, what the heck to do. She throws the knife into the water. She can't do it, which makes sense. She's so in love with this guy, and even though he betrayed her, 
she knew coming into this, at least if she didn't, she's a big idiot. She knew that she was taking a lot of chances, especially without the ability to talk. So she throws the knife and what happens other than these beings called the Daughters of the Air appear to the Little Mermaid? They explain this once again, that the mermaids do not have an immortal soul unless they get the love of a human. But these daughters of the air are this spiritual force. They don't have immortal souls, but because they keep doing good deeds, they essentially live for a really long time in order to just do good things. A nice principle if you think about it. So they fly around, do all these good deeds, and they can do this for 300 years which is about all the good they have in their power. After that point, they can receive an immortal soul, and then they can take part in the happiness of mankind. And they see in the Little Mermaid that she has suffered and that she has done good and not turn her back on things that she promised to do, etc. And they give her the chance to go do good deeds for 300 years to then get an immortal soul. And with that, the Little Mermaid is lifted into the air by these mystical beings and she is off essentially to do good things and that's where the story ends it drops us right there we don't know if she does the things we don't know if she managed to get an immortal soul but she has the chance i think the little mermaid film from disney plays off of some of these things but overall of course it's not the kind story that disney often portrays We see a lot of these kind of negative and dark moments coming in. We see a lot of pain and suffering that Disney would not portray. And there's also this big dynamic of religion that comes in. And I think it's really interesting that in the story, the Little Mermaid is actually able to get her soul because it allows that dynamic of Christianity to not just be something regarded to human, but anything that does good. And in a children's tale, I think that is super important. Imagine if a child is seeing this person sacrifice all of these things and change their entire life to try to do good and help people and to achieve what Christians want to achieve. If they weren't able to do that, why would they want to be Christian, right? And I think that this also plays into a dynamic of trying to convert people into a religion, trying to say that by converting them, by them wanting to do good, by them wanting to be human-like and have a soul and have this idea of heaven that allows them to gain this access to a higher being, etc. It's a way of trying to convince people that you should be like the prince, you should be like humans that have church steeples, that have their civilizations, etc. And anyone can do that, even if it's somebody that's barbaric and more based in nature or just has a completely different religion. Also, of course, once we have this lesson for children, right, if she does good while she's in this Daughters of Air service, she will get her soul faster um, throughout the 300 years. But if she does any bad, she can, however, add time to her service. So it's not like she's going to then disappear back into the sea foam or anything like that. So you have this kind of grim warning, right? Do bad, good luck, right? Do good then you'll get your soul faster. It almost converts the daughters of air almost into some kind of like purgatory, essentially, where you have a chance to prove your worth to go from one place to another. If you've ever seen the show The Good Place, it reminds me of that, right? 
where if you um, did all these good things and there's the point system, right? And all these people in the good place that is actually hell are there because they did all these awful things and lost all these points throughout their life. In any case, there's a lot of religious dynamics to this. There's a lot of painful dynamics to this. A lot of things that are hard to read, the cutting of the tongue and the description of as she's walking and the legs are stabbing. Not Disney whatsoever in much of this. I think that people who really enjoy the Disney movies and the kind of Disneyified versions of fairy tales are not going to appreciate this story. Because of all of these difficult moments, because of all of these things that are so far from what Disney puts into their stories. This is definitely not the story for Happy Ever After. This is not your typical princess finding a prince, falling in love, and making her dreams come true whatsoever. At the same time, I personally find that this is a story that you should not leave on read. This is a story that you need to pick up and you need to go through yourself. Firstly, the fact that this story marked history so much that it was reconverted into so many different versions throughout its time means that it's worth checking out the original, especially because it's so interesting to see how time and thoughts and philosophy has changed since the writing of this story. Secondly, I really do just find the writing to be quite beautiful with the descriptions of the sea and the way that things are being described. Personally, I love the creation of this new underwater world. I like that us as readers need this type of translation, using things from our own world like church steeples to measure the distance to the bottom. It's something that we know, and it also holds a lot of symbolic weight, right? Church steeples, projecting your eyes up to God, the religious aspects that we've already talked about. At the same time, this world also has to reflect our own world. There needs to be a leader, a king. There needs to be a respect for the hierarchy. There needs to be a sense of lifespan and afterlife, of laws that govern the world. There are so many parallels, and it's fascinating to see how Hans Christian Andersen constructs this world. Finally, this is something that I love about all fairy tales. I'm a sucker for the dynamics between nature and civilization. This strikes me in particular today because it almost feels opposite. Now people want to flee the city to get into nature, calm and tranquility. We see much more attention given to the natural world and taking care of it and all the creatures that coexist in it. In this story, in many fairy tales, we see the exact opposite of that. We see the desire of a natural being that is human-like, all things considered, but this desire is to join the human race. It's to join this world to be saved, to have a soul and an afterlife and a god. So it's interesting to see how generally the world has changed since the 1800s. Today there's a turn away from civilization, there's an idea of people going to buy land together and live off the land, etc., etc., and here we have that opposite urge to join civilization, to become like the others. We can then add in how Disney has altered that story. So in 1836, when the story was written, we then see the first Disney version of The Little Mermaid in 1989. And then recently we've had a live action version, right? So that doesn't even include all of the children's versions of the story that have been written since. So if you really want to, you can track the evolution of how things and views have changed from Hans Christian Andersen to some of these other children's versions of the story to Disney, then to Disney's most recent echo of the film. 
it's definitely worth a read. It's a short story, it doesn't take too much time. Just to be able to think about all of these things and then comparing it to what you know in the versions of the story that you have personally read or heard, etc. In two weeks, I'm going to read the story since it's in public domain for my bi-weekly podcast. That way, those who want to hear the story read aloud, you'll have an opportunity to engage with it. I'll also open a forum on my blog for people to put their thoughts on the differences between the movies and the story. I would love to have people come in and give their impressions, especially if it relates to these different dynamics we've been talking about. Oh, I read the story when I was a child and I remember that this happened and that happened and it wasn't like that at all. Or actually, Disney is spot on, right? That would shock me, but because I haven't seen the movie, anything can happen. I would love to hear your feedback on how I can be better or things that you enjoyed that I'm already doing. If you could take a moment, go to our website, clayslitreview.com. There you'll find links to my Facebook page, my TikTok account, my Instagram account. You'll also find my email address, claycreativesolutions at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. It would be amazing if you could take a moment to leave a review, leave a comment on the podcast that helps me reach a greater audience and will help me get this project on the road to really be forming a larger community surrounding literature. I'll be giving shout outs to anybody who writes me with some feedback or who happens to leave a comment or review for the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.